0: Welcome to the Elite Level Podcast. I'm your host Alex Elaine, and this is the podcast where we explore how Elite Level performers think, act and operate. As always if you're watching this on YouTube I'd really appreciate if you could hit that like button Comment, share, and subscribe. And if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, if you could just take a couple of minutes to leave a five-star review, that will help us grow the reach of the pod. Lastly, very recently we got to launch the Elite Level newsletter as well. So please be sure to visit www.elitelevel.co. that is elitelevel.co. To be sure to stay tuned for all of the latest tips and advice from the brightest minds in software sales. With all of that said, We've got an absolutely fantastic guest here today. Gavin, it's great to see you. Delighted to be here, Alex. Thanks for the invite. Thank you so much. So Gavin, for those out there who don't know much about you, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your career highlights and your background.
1: Well, I've been in enterprise software sales, I guess, for 27 years. So quite a while. And before that in enterprise sales, but not necessarily in software and hardware, actually. I started my career, I guess at the point I'd say I started my career, is I Worked on a market stall in Milton Keynes, where I originate from, selling computer hardware and software aged 14. And kind of my career's, I guess, gone full circle. And that really set me on the road to, wouldn't this be kind of interesting to do, to do as a career? I wonder how I get there. I left school at 16, 1.0 level on GCSE, whatever they're called now, and just thought I wanted to do something with computers. Not entirely sure. Didn't get the grades I needed to get the apprenticeship that I wanted. So kind of fell into what was called a youth training scheme. We got paid £27.50 a week to get get trained in things. Mine was in electronic engineering. And I found my way working for, at the time, the world's second largest IT company, a company called Unisys, $10 billion turnover, 100,000 employees. And they made basically mainframes and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I became an engineer there. But through my journey of being an engineer. And I I was quite good as an engineer. I then got into software because it seemed the software engineering folks seemed to get paid a little bit more than the hardware engineers. So I moved into software engineering, did that for a short while, a couple of years. And the people who got paid more than the software engineers were the salespeople. They drove the best cars. They kind of wore the best suits. They took you for lunch kind of when you're out in sight with them. And so I kind of plotted my way, I guess, of how can I move into to a sales career? Uh, and eventually did that age 22, 23 with Unisys, which was a really interesting time. As I said, I was living in Milton Keynes. And my first job, I guess you would probably analogize to that of an SDR. We called it uh, customer management, telephone customer management. But my office that I used to have to travel to was in Solihull which for me meant a 70-mile trip there and back, 140-mile daily commute to do an SDR job, to get there for eight, half past eight, and phone people and ask them whether they'd like to buy some more stuff. And that really kind of set me on on my road. I did that for nine months and then kind of came to work in London for the same company, selling all sorts of stuff, small mainframes, peripherals, laptops, all sorts of stuff.
0: Well, wow, it's a truly incredible journey. <laughs> I had to take a moment just to see if there was more to it because there's so much to explore here. So I want to start at the, at the beginning, right, as I often like to do. You know, you mentioned coming out of school with one GCSE and one O-level, right? And I just want to understand a little bit more about being at that particular point, how you went about your decision making, right? And actually what the feeling was in your gut, not necessarily having come out, it sounds like, with 11 GCSEs and uh, massive educational profile? How did you start to figure things out after that?
1: I think if you leave school with one GCE, a lot of decisions kind of get made for you from an educational system perspective. And, and the routes available to you are fairly limited, but actually kind of what I wanted to do. And thankfully, the government had this scheme at the time. And uh, so that was a pretty obvious choice for me. And a lot of my peers who left school, I, w- I wasn't thick, I was bright, I was probably a little bit lazy and academic stuff wasn't for me. I couldn't wait to get into the workplace, start earning some money and start to build a career in this thing that was computers. Again, building on kind of that market soul experience.
0: Got it, got it. And then you, you've you gone into software engineering and being an engineer before this transition to what we right. call an SDR. So I'd love to just learn more about what the lived experience was like as an engineer. It sounds like the flashy suits and the bright lights <laughs> tempted you over, but you know, was there some form of passion that led you to actually stick around for that period of time in software engineering?
1: Yeah, I, I love logically solving problems. And I think if you're in electronics engineering or even software engineering, you're dealing with ones and zeros, pretty much. And to solve problems, you have to think in a specific logical manner. You have to go through a series of sequential series of steps to do that. And I think that just played to the way that I tend to think. So I really enjoyed that move. And I I said, I, I was a pretty good engineer, But I would have reached a peak in capability, reached a peak in performance and and earnings. And that really wasn't playing to what I was trying to achieve and therefore kind of took the next step. And through that process, there's a load of stuff that is self-taught. How do you start to teach yourself about computer programming? How do you start to teach yourself and and go to night school to learn a little bit more about electronic engineering or or whatever that particular um, flavor was? So there was certainly a drive, personal drive and passion to go for that level of self-improvement where you can outside of a normal education kind of that classic education system, O-levels, A-levels degree.
0: Yeah, really interesting. How much of this was really innate in you, Gavin? Because one of the things that's standing out to me is that you just seem to have this hunger, right? This passion and drive to just get out there and start to just make things happen but i think for a lot of people out there you know they sometimes feel that their journey or their path has already been mapped out for them there's some people out there that have a lot of pressure to perform academically and there's this view that if they're not able to do that then really they have a cap on their potential so just wondering how much of this was innate in you versus maybe things that you were taught from your parents or or, or your overall environment
1: yes it's a really great point actually I was always brought up with a hard work ethic. So the harder you work, you should, in theory, get better results. And that's come from my father. And it's something that I've tried to apply all the way through, partly because I've had to, to kind of cover up inadequacies in whatever area that may be. But if you work, if you try and be the hardest worker there is, you know, that commute to Solihull every day, you know, there's probably not too many foolish people who would have done that. But I had to push myself to do that because that's what I needed to do to achieve kind of the end goal where I wanted to get to. So I think that work ethic is certainly instilled from parental and then kind of brought through and, and it's actually it becomes enjoyable. And I think the other aspect on that is around a curiosity of learning and, and that never leaves you through life, right? You know, how can you, I've got a great dear friend, he says, you know, as long as I'm earning and learning, life is good. And, and I think that's a truism as well.
0: I love that saying, I often say learning, earning and growing. Right, That's the mantra right there, right? To, sure. to have a happy fulfilling career. So we've got to talk about this commute to Sully Hole <laughs> because this is this is pretty incredible, right? 140 mile round trip for an SDR role, right? right. Which is, uh, you know, I often talk about being a lifelong SDR, very, very passionate about that role, but that's a lot of dedication, right? To be able to to go in there so early in your career and make that happen. So just walk us through the decision-making but not only that, really the first few months doing that, because it's a different thing signing the contract saying I'm happy to do it. And then the lived experience once reality starts to set in.
1: Yeah, and, it, and, and I think part of it comes from being as an engineer and I would get those occasional trips out to site. And you jump in your car and I might have to go down to Devon or go to London or go to Leeds or somewhere like that. And in the days before Sat Nav, get my little A to Z. And follow my map and ask somebody to fax me through kind of where they are specifically. And um, so I loved being in the car, have car, will travel. It was always kind of just part of the philosophy. So I didn't really think too much about it. It was hour and 10 minute commute each way, two hours, 20, two and a half hours, maybe three hours on a bad day if there's congestion on the M6 or the M1. But that's where the role was. That role didn't exist in London. Unisys had a big presence in Milton Keynes. It didn't exist in Milton Keynes. It existed in Birmingham. So, you know, if that's what I wanted to do, you've got to make some sacrifice. And the sacrifice for me was getting up a little bit earlier, listen to the radio in the car for an hour and a bit, you know, just getting that le- uh, level of freedom, that, that freedom of thought process. I don't think at the time I viewed it at all as a hardship. It was, a, it was somewhat of a pleasure, you know,
0: yeah. No, I think it says a lot. I'd, I'd love to know if you were talking to someone else out there, right? Who's really early in their career and they're looking at you and saying, right, Gavin, I've got this great opportunity, but it's the same kind of journey away. You know, there's some, some hardship to me actually being able to get there or to, to sustain. What would your advice be to them? Right. Would you actually advise them to really take a similar approach and, and adopt a similar mindset to yourself? Would you look back on that and now see it differently?
1: I've interviewed a number of people over the years who, who probably wouldn't have joined a company because you have to change tube stops, let alone go on a commute. I think everybody's going to be different and take a different approach. I think the thing that certainly sat in my mind, and maybe for some of your audience as well, is around the level of sacrifice that you're prepared to put in, and that's throughout your career as well. What sacrifices are you prepared to make to achieve the goal that you want to try and achieve? And for me. They seemed at the time relatively small sacrifices, but for some people that may be a huge thing. So I think everybody's going to kind of weigh that up as as they see fit. But no doubt you through your career, a number of your guests, myself included, you make sacrifice along the way. If you wish to be successful, it just depends, you know, where those boundaries are for you, I think.
0: Yeah, I think there's there's so much in that. You've actually taken me a little bit on a trip down memory lane. I think it was my third role, my second account management role or account exec role. I worked for a company called SG World and I always remember I was the only person who didn't live on my patch. I was covering West London, but it went up as far as Luton and St. Albans. I lived in the Southeast and so every day, my day started off with ridiculous amount of traffic, often about an hour and a half to get there and sometimes worse getting home. I remember times falling asleep in the car, probably eating far too much McDonald's on the road. But the reality is I wouldn't change that experience for the world because it was tough, right? It was difficult. I was tired all the time. But the things that I learned, the resiliency that I built and actually to the point you made earlier, Gavin, that was where the opportunity was. So I grabbed it with two hands and and, and it really, I look back on that role as being instrumental in terms of a lot of the things and the characteristics and behaviors it helped to instill in me. So I'd really advise anyone out there listening To kind of walk towards the fire, so to speak, right? Walk towards the opportunity, lean in when times get difficult, because ultimately that's only going to build your character and help you to continue to mature and develop your career.
1: It is. And and like I said, it never leaves you, you know, that view of what you have of a sacrifice. Last month, I was asked to go for a a final stage interview at an organisation. Didn't get the job. Congratulations to the individual who did. And it was in Seattle, And the gig was fly out Wednesday, fly back Thursday. And that's a 20 hour round trip flight for seven interviews and literally 24 hours total in in Seattle, less than 24 hours in Seattle. But you're there and back in 24 hours. And my mentality is, well, I'm prepared to make the sacrifice. I'm probably not there long enough to get jet lag. If I perform well, I'll get the job. And if I don't perform well, I get to tell people about the day I went to Seattle for a day. And you get a good story out of it. And, and it's like, you know, if the worst case is I get this great story and a great experience going to a city I've never been to before, why would you say no? And it's the same thing when you go meet prospects or meet customers. You can do it via Zoom, or in fact, what you really ought to be doing is, where are they based? How can I get there? Wouldn't it be great if I went to see them? How do you think the prospect would fail if you did that. It's just amazing. Yeah, I love the way that
0: you frame that. It's a another chapter in the story, another chapter in the book. And I think the richer those stories can be, you get to look back on your life and say, "What, what a run!" That's often the way that I think about it. So, Gavin, when we look at your career, right, you had some big runs in in large companies, right, very early. You've spoken about Unisys. We've got to come onto kind of your, your time at Oracle, which spans a couple of decades, right. So, just talk to us a bit about that step into Oracle what the decision making was like there and just walk us through the run there because it's pretty incredible
1: yeah and I, and I you know look back very proudly on my total 20 years in oracle i started as the youngest field rep in the uk age 25 of which i got offered that role having gone for group interview the, there was a job advertised in the times newspaper i went along to a hotel at heathrow with a room full of like 40 50 people all wearing same suit you know, shirt that's not quite done up, wonky tie. And it was just churn of interviews then to shortlist. And then um, then I got taken on. But yeah, the youngest field rep at, uh, at Oracle, which again, very proud of. I know mean, he got fired after nine months, got put in a pip, right? Got to put on a performance plan. There was something missing, as there can be. And Oracle was quite a hard, you know, kind of charging place at the time. This is in the mid-90s, right? Take you back take you back then. And, but I managed my way through that and went on to have huge success. And, and, you know, literally two years after I joined, did the largest deal in the UK that year, largest deal in financial services that year. And, you know, earned a huge amount of money as a, as a very impressionable 27, 28 year old who'd really not been doing you know, this for too long, right? For a couple of years. And then somebody gives you a million dollar commission check. And it's like, this is pretty good. How do we do more? Right? What did I do right? What did I do wrong? How can I learn more? How can I go and repeat this? And it's not so much about the commission check, because that gets spent um, pretty quickly. It's just about trying to push yourself forward, you know, where money is a motivator. And then you actually go and acquire these skills based on hard work and, and things. So yeah, that's been quite a journey. And I ended up on the on the UK exec board and left after twenty years, took a sabbatical, just needed some time out. But yes, quite experiences through that process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So a few things to unpack <laughs> in that. The first thing is the the nine months in and then a pit. Tough time to be in, right, Gavin? You know, there's some people out there that uh, can relate to that. We're in a time right now, there's a lot of layoffs happening and so many just difficult things to deal with. What's your advice to others out there, whether they're on a pip going through a tough time, again, in the fire right now, just the way that you'd potentially coach them to start to think about finding a way forward during those challenging times?
1: Yeah, uh, and it never happened to me before. It's quite a sterile process to go through, but very clear. I mean, it's an unmistakable process. But I think you have to ask yourself, do I back myself? Do I think I've got the skills, capability, the wit and wherewithal, and the energy to go push through this? I didn't feel like I was being used as a mechanism to push, push me out. I thought it was a mechanism to increase performance and to unlock what I believe my manager at the time felt was latent potential. And it was basically a kick up the ass probably that I needed and it worked. So I think for any advice to anybody in a similar situation, and it's really the thing, you know, that voodoo thing, we don't really talk about. Nobody posts it on LinkedIn, right? Nobody brags on Instagram. I've just been put on a pit and it happens daily. Right. I mean, it's a common occurrence in our industry. And I think people just need to have that, word with themselves seek advice if they've got any mentors and coaches and plot a plan to get success because even if you don't reach the specific goal actually the characteristics and attributes that you are going to demonstrate over that typically eight to twelve week period are the things that your manager is probably looking out for and i think they are instantly measurable in either shifting attitude, increase in activity, whatever that may be. And I think people just need to to have that word of themselves and, and push on through that. It worked for me, it may not work for everybody. And just because you may be on a pip in one organization doesn't mean to say you're a bad individual, doesn't mean to say you're not very good at your job. It may just mean that it's not the right place for you to go and apply your trade because you will be great somewhere else. And again, don't take it personally either. Just business.
0: Yeah. yeah, very, very well said, and it's great advice. And I, I think there's also a point to be said in what we spoke about earlier in terms of this just being a another chapter, another few words in a, in a story. Uh, and when you actually zoom out all of a sudden you see that this is just a very small moment in what will be a, a long-term career and, and life, right? So for anyone who's just going through something difficult, just take a moment and zoom out, right? It's just a moment in time, another chapter in the book or another few words in the book that you will get through, you will get past, and ultimately it's going to set you up for more success moving forward from the lessons and experiences that you'll learn. So I love that. Let's fast forward to the million dollar commission check because I know that's going to prick up or perk up a few few ears here. So, Gavin, when that landed, you know what went through your mind? Because I can certainly say I remember getting my my first ever ten thousand pound check some years back and. It was the weirdest feeling I think I'd ever had because, of course, there was this m- blend of excitement and enthusiasm. But for me and my upbringing, I'd never seen money like that in one go. Uh, and so I had this really strange blend of feeling a bit lost and kind of confused, and I didn't know what to do with it, and I was anxious about losing it. So a million dollars at that age. What were the feelings like at that time?
1: It's it's definitely unreal, you know, as I remind Myself and my team, none of us are saving lives here, right? In a, in a job, we get paid extraordinarily well for what we do, and then if you do your job well, you get paid even more. I mean, it's like the dream, the dream gig. It was strange. I, I mean, I, this is this is when a million dollars was a lot of money, by the way, right? The beginning of '98, and uh, I was married, no children at the time, so went out, bought the flash car, and kind of paid off the mortgage and and did a bunch, you know, made some investments i think the the, the positive thing is it gives you a a hunger and a desire to go and do more but not setting that as the the level right that they happen maybe a small handful of times if you're lucky in one's career right and even if you're great they may not happen at all the downside of that and certainly something that affected me was that the ego kind of just got inflated i was you know 27, 28 years old, my first time working, really working in the city of London, you know, you can kind of get a little bit lost there, right? There's a lot of things to be getting up to with a young man with a couple of quid in his pocket. And I think you probably need people around you to help regulate that ego, to help keep you focused on the job in hand, because you've still got to go deliver the next month and the next month and the next month, and not not have that as the default set of behavior. Go back to the core competencies, core capabilities, and your mission as part of a team in a large organization and what you're trying to achieve. And I didn't get that balance right on many, many occasions, for sure. What it did do, it gave me a huge amount of confidence. Sometimes that confidence overspilt, but it gave me a huge amount of confidence. And actually as salespeople, one of the things we love is confidence. Because confidence generally tends to breed more success, and it just set me on a on a roll for the next you know goodness knows how many years, but it can get out of control for sure, no doubt
0: yeah, I think you you made a great point about the people around you sometimes that becomes really important, right yeah. just to bring you bring you back down a little bit of a peg. The point around confidence as well so so important. You know, I'm often talking to my team about just conviction in everything that you do, that the difference that can make when you're engaging with a customer, right? Trying to build trust. But if you don't have that confidence and conviction in the way that you're conveying and articulating your message, how do you really expect anyone else to feel that actually they're standing in front of a thought leader and someone they should trust in? So all really, really valuable points. I want to fast forward just to the fact that you, you got into leadership roles, right? While you were at. and you also stayed at the company for a very long time. So just talk to us a bit about that transition from being in the field to a leader, and then just talk to us a little about when you think back to doing 20 years in the company, as you reflect on that, was that the right decision? Would you actually stand by having such an extensive run at a business, especially in a environment now where people are a little bit more trigger happy to move on?
1: Yeah, I think it worked for me. Undoubtedly, I wanted to move into leadership, like a number of your guests, actually, where I felt I was really good at, at my job. I was a really good rep, similar to the way I thought I felt I was a really good engineer, really good software engineer. so you know I thought I was really good at that, so I'd probably be a really good manager, and I wanted the business card with a job title, manager or director or whatever on that. So I was given an opportunity in a very, very small business within Oracle, where the the product leader for this business in the US was a guy called Thomas Kurian. Thomas is the CEO of Google Cloud now. And Thomas was tasked by Larry to build this up. I led that team in the UK, small team of three, started my job day one, day five, one of the team resigned, went traveling. I've since employed him several times since, he's a a dear friend. And kind of, I think through that that journey, you realize that you've got, actually as a leader, you've got three roles. You've got the kind of management cadence stroke parental responsibility for the team below you, you've got a responsibility with your peer group. So other managers in the organization and how you interface, liaise, collaborate with them. And quite often in an organization like Oracle, it actually turned into how do you compete with them? Because you're probably all vying for that next role after that. And you're also now responsible to a directly, to a senior director, to a VP, to a SVP, to an EVP, whatever that may be. So you've kind of now juggling three roles, whereas a rep, as an AE, you've got one job, which is to take care of your customers and prospects. So the level of complexity, the email volume increases enormously. And I had a a great leader, unfortunately he's no longer with us, a guy called Stuart Turner, and I went to Stuart and said, Stuart, I'm just getting swamped. I'm literally getting hundreds more emails a day. How do I manage that? I said, Gavin, here's the thing I do. I action a third, I delegate a third, and I delete a third. So well, how do you know you've got the right ones? You'll find out. People will tell you. And it's not a bad mantra, right? You don't go deleting the wrong ones, though. So yeah, life does change. And again, like many of your prior guests, made a ton of mistakes thought my job as a manager was to probably dictate to tell not to coach so much and you know as quite an assertive individual with a huge amount of confidence back then and a reputation for being a high performer again that probably overspills and you kind of learn your lessons and way through that till you become you know second and third and ultimately fourth line manager through that organization
0: for sure. Yeah, a, a lot to take away in that. I'd, I'd love to just get your perspective on what defines great leadership then, Gavin. You've now uh, mentioned you've, you've got experience that goes first, second, third and fourth line, right? And uh, across quite a wide range of different companies. And we'll kind of come on to that transition from larger enterprise type business to slightly more agile company. But on the point of what defines great leadership, what does that mean to Gavin?
1: My wife reminded me this morning, she said, don't don't forget to mention to Alex the quote. And there's this great quote by Tom Peters, kind of management guru. And Tom Peters' quote is something to the extent of leaders are not judged by the number of followers, leaders are judged by the number of leaders they create. And I think when I look back through my career, I take huge amount of pride in not necessarily creating leaders, but at least giving people development opportunities where they can become great leaders. And I think one of the things that working in a large organization, and Oracle was fantastic at this, is giving people great opportunities to develop, to make mistakes, but with a safety net, but also to give great experiences by which they can develop as a a professional development, personal development, life development. So I think that thing about, Leadership for me is how do you create great leaders in your team? And I look back and it's not about the disciples that you have or those fanboys or followers. It's about who now, who worked for me in the past, who I've put specific effort into, is now doing things far greater than my career will ever get to. And that's probably the greatest source of pride. And it's not about commission check and it's not about the deal it's about the people but i worked in an organization that fostered a culture of people development but you had to go get it kind of nobody really gave it to you but those opportunities are, are kind of you know limitless really it's a. Uh
0: fantastic saying and i'm glad we haven't let your wife down either (laughs) (laughs) i didn't want to send you home knowing that that's the case so that's awesome let's talk a bit about this kind of large enterprise being a part of the big business uh, the process the i guess operational excellence that comes along with that and then looking at the other side right where you've also had a lot of experience now which is the hyper growth younger you know arguably more dynamic company that also comes with some other considerations so let's just kind of start fairly broad, but just talk to us about your experiences comparatively being in both of those different types and profiles of companies. Yeah, and, it, and, and
1: it's interesting actually, as a, as, a, as a medic fanboy now, but I've come to it very, very late in my career. And kind of the McMahon, the whole playbook thing, I get it, love it. It's nice and simple, makes logical sense. My sequential, logical problem solving kind of mind, you know, it appeals to it. At Oracle, I was struggling to think of anything that we had formalized in the early days of the career and then kind of i've probably done every sales methodology going and we settled on one at oracle called infamentis around understanding tactical pains consequential pains key business requirements um, solution mapping discovery mapping influence mapping which i found fascinating but i don't remember that being a religion so much as today something like medic would be or Challenger sale or whatever you know solution selling or spin selling, whatever those things are. I think, you know, large organisations with a large footprint with hundreds of thousands of customers can maybe get away without being as fastidious in its process as, as a younger organisation with less resources. And my experience through two private equity portfolio companies and, and, a, and a CRC VC-backed organisation is you need to have a more defined level of rigour and process to make a bigger impact as an organization and as a brand. And any CIO in the country will probably go, you know, agree to meet with the Oracle rep or the Oracle SVP or whatever it may be. But you don't have that same luxury afforded to you working for a smaller organization. So you have to be really good at other stuff. And I think being really good at that process piece, medic as an example, you know, will, will help, um, level the playing field.
0: Yeah. No, it's really fascinating. You know, we talk about medic shops and more. And, you know, one of the things I often try and encourage people to do, and I even had to do myself uh, here, Gavin, is sometimes lean into these methodologies, but make sure that we sometimes bring our own perspective to things because you leverage medic extensively. I continue to do so today. But, you know, one of the aspects that sometimes I felt people gave less consideration to is just the importance of emotional intelligence when you're operating as a seller and i've seen in many cases people putting these kind of uh, frameworks or qualification methodologies, however you want to label them into place while actually forgetting about the fact that you are dealing with human beings. You still need to be able to read people effectively. You need to be able to read the room, hold the room, uh, demonstrate that conviction in the way that you articulate. We can't forget how important these things are too. So it's not to take away from the methodology, but I think the way that we encourage people to think about it and actually work. What it takes to take someone from inception to signing a multi-million dollar contract. You, you can't solely rely on, on methodologies and frameworks alone. There's there's more that comes into it. I'd love to get your perspective on what I've just described. Do you, do you agree? Do you see it differently, or, or otherwise?
1: I do, and it and it's just a. Per, I think it comes down to personal preference. And the first thing you know, along with EQ, and I think it's a subset of, is that level of self-awareness. You know, what are the things that are going to motivate you? What do you enjoy doing? And I've known organisations who just drill this methodology, right? And it's pretty brutal. You hear some of the early stories of PTC. Whether they're apocryphal or, or, or true, they don't sound particularly enjoyable for my style, right, for the way that I operate and the way that I get the best out of myself, And I think as a, as a sales professional, you've got to go find out what are the things that make you great? You know, when I'm interviewing or coaching some of my team, I'll ask a question of, answer the question for me, which is I operate at my best when dot, 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 write down the characteristics of when you operate at your best and also understand what the corollary of that is. What are the opposite things, right? I don't operate at my best when I'm being drilled on, did I make those 50 you know outbound calls that day or you know whatever those things may be so no no one's self and then try and find an organization and a culture and something you're passionate about selling in in a company where you're going to be developed but alongside that level of development where you are going to get experiences because you've naturally said you know go meet the customer well to a large portion of your community go meet the customer is both dialing into the same zoom call. As opposed to going to meet the customer. And I would encourage everybody, once they found that technology that they're passionate about, and the organization and the leadership team that they feel they're going to learn from, is what are the other things, what are the other constituent parts, those almost experiential elements that might be unique, uniquely afforded in that company? My first ever deal back in the days of Unisys, I sold the first Ethernet network to Buckingham Palace. And I had four visits to the palace through the front door, not through the back door. It's actually a side door, but at the front, across the courtyard. And uh, back in the days when Ethernet was this big, thick, yellow cable called 10Base2 and it had a clamp on it and kind of... And I'm still telling the story now. It's nearly 30 years ago, right? Or just the experience of going on site and meeting a customer or as exec sponsor... At Oracle, I was expensive sponsor for both John Lewis and for Tesco's. Put yourself, make a sacrifice and go work in the warehouse at John Lewis and Milton Keynes for the day to understand what it's like to get that experience or to go and pack bags at Tesco's checkout because it's quite a humbling experience, number one. Number two, you get to understand a bit about what's important to that organisation, which is somebody passing through the till buying goods and services. And I think the more experiential things that you can build into your career, learning medic's great, learning challenger sale's great, doing spin selling's great. But there's other aspects to this that you can you can help in the right organisation, your career can take you in a different path so that you sound like the grey-haired man telling stories, but also that help build up that character, that help build up to your point around EQ, I think are critically important and can take you in some really Fascinating tangents of experiences.
0: There's some great, great wisdom in all of that. I'm gonna to have to play this one back myself. I think to uh, take some notes on that, Gavin. So one of the areas I wanted to fast forward to uh, with on you is is you taking some time on a sabbatical and just understanding a bit more about the rationale behind that. Why did you do it, and what was the experience like going through that?
1: Yeah, I was. Um, th- there's never a great time to take a sabbatical in a career. You know, this wasn't in the times where. You could, you know, we didn't really have a concept of work from home. You know, there were no unlimited vacation periods and there's never a great time to take a sabbatical when you're on, you know, the UK board of the world's largest enterprise software company. It's always, let's look at this in two quarters time, but that never happens. I was fortunate in my career. I could afford to take some time out and I was tired and I could feel myself and I had feedback from others I was probably tipping the balance of being a character I really didn't want to become. And that was having an impact on me, family, people who worked for me, people who didn't work for me. And I took a decision to take myself out of that environment because I think if you stay in one place too long, you become very much a product of that environment for the good things and for the not so good things as well. And so I took some time out. My wife and I went traveling and it was great. And and it's life-affirming and career-defining for me. But it, I couldn't put it stronger than that. It's, it was life-changing, taking that time out
0: well I think it says a lot especially in our world which can often be very go 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 sometimes it is very important right to just take a moment catch stock figure out where you are internally uh, and sometimes take decisions like that to give yourself that opportunity to to really be best self both personally and professionally so I appreciate you sharing that
1: Gavin I have a couple more things for you one of them is what drives you there's something very different to what used to I get My satisfaction now, not of doing the deal. It's about the relationships and people you meet, staff, customers, partners. That's particularly appealing to me um, because they can sustain through different jobs and and different aspects of your career. And the other part is around, and this may sound a little bit trite, but I promise you it's not. It's driven out a passion of developing individuals. And if I can pass on any element of any wisdom I may or may not have, to help somebody have a more enjoyable career, a more successful career, then I'm all in. And it's a huge area of satisfaction for me, a huge area of passion that certainly overtakes. There's always another deal. There's always another deal, right? But there's not always more people to develop, to put investment in and to help along the way. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a real you know burning light for me.
0: Yeah, I could uh, could really feel that uh, as you were going through it. So I think it it really says a ton. Gavin, I've got one last question for you. And uh, as I always say, if you've watched any previous episodes, then you'll know what's coming. But it's really what your best pieces of advice are for that person out there that wants to go from good to elite level in their career. What would that be?
1: I gave this some thoughts. And I think I'll try to pick three parts to your question like, like every good salespeople, I'm not just going to answer the question. Let me, let me break that down. One is work harder than everybody else. And it's not about being first in the office or last in the office. It's about working harder than everybody else. Through that, be clear about what sacrifices you're prepared to make, personally and professionally, in order to get the ultimate gain that you're after. Be good at what you're doing. And, and I talk to my team about break things down and be really good at that and then move on and be really good at something else and to do that you've got to have that level of self-awareness that level of honesty with yourself and lastly I think if you can do that do it with passion do it with a smile on your face and for goodness sake have fun because this is such a tough tough career and you see glimpses of this sometimes on LinkedIn but not as much as I'd like with that level of authenticity this is tough I commented last week on something that you know, the stat, 65% or so of people miss Target. I never see those posts on LinkedIn. And those people are suffering, right? They're feeling bad about it. Don't. Work harder than everybody else. Make some sacrifices. Get good at what you're doing and do it with a smile on your face. Do you know what? You'll probably have a really great career and you'll enjoy doing what you're doing. And your friends, family, colleagues, they'll see that through you as well. That's a mic
0: drop moment right there, Gavin. That's how you wrap up a podcast. So Thank you so much for coming on. Have you
1: enjoyed the experience? It's been great, Alex. I appreciate your generosity with the questioning and uh, your natural level of curiosity as well. So thank you.
0: I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Wonderful wisdom from all of that. So if any of you, uh, hopefully you enjoyed that episode. If you did, if you're watching on YouTube, that like button, please make sure you give it a smash, comment, share and subscribe. And as mentioned, if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, please take a couple of minutes, leave us a five star review after so much wisdom from Gavin right there. And lastly, as mentioned, we recently went live with our newsletter. So, elitelevel.co, that's elitelevel.co. Be sure to subscribe so you get a digestible form of all of the wonderful wisdom that we've covered in all of these episodes. I look forward to seeing you on the next one.